0: We do have a photo on the wall there by the coffee clutch that uh, was taken several years ago at the feast. And I don't know why we have not made that a, uh, an annual thing, but we haven't. That one's, I don't know, two or three or four years old, if judging from the size of the children in it compared to now. Uh, but uh, it was suggested we have a group photo after the service today, before we get away, and I thought, well, there's only one way I know to accomplish that, and let's tell them their dessert will not be served until after the photo. <laughs> so, uh, let's all gather, not right here in front, because the sun will be too bright. Uh, that one was in front of the building, but may have over here with a backdrop of some trees and bushes we can hide behind. Uh, no. Uh, to get a group photo, and then we can put it on the wall by the other one, and uh, now somebody remind me, and let's try to make this an annual thing. I think before I get into the sermon and so on, I I would like to make a few comments about the feast overall. Uh, Just to me, it's been a very wonderful, smooth time, and we've had a lot of physical food and drink, and we've had a lot of... Spiritual food and drink, and I think it's been uh, just a wonderful time. I know I sat last night. We, we started out out there eating, and there were a lot of people there, and then little by little they dwindled and dwindled. We had it down to the final four, and uh, some of us sat out and talked for another hour or so after everyone else left, and then. Three left, and I started I thought, well, I guess I should get up and and douse the fire with water so I don't worry about it through the night and I looked up at the stars and I looked down at the fire and said, I think, I'll stay a while, so I won, but uh I don't know. I sat there and just looked at the fire till after eleven and contemplated some of these things, and it was it was really nice to to enjoy that, but I do appreciate the effort of all of you who have gone to the time and trouble and uh, mental anguish and nervous energy to prepare sermons and sermonettes and to add that part to it, which has been wonderful. And, of course, so many social events and the planning and organization that's involved and getting people involved. Uh, I thought our little variety show was just a... It's a wonderful thing. It was simple. It was easy. It was fun, and no competition or anything. It was just, it was just a good time. And the Pinewood Derby. I think we're going to have 173 cars entered next year. From the sound of things, people will be putting in three and four. But uh, all those things take time and energy. And uh, those are the fun things, of course, and the dance and everything else we did. The time in Zion was wonderful to be up and enjoy that beauty of God's creation. But uh, then there's the mundane, the fabulous cooking that was done, and the cleaning of the hall and the rearranging of things day after day. Uh, Those things may go unnoticed for the most part, but if they weren't done, we would have confusion. So, I really do appreciate all that has been done and put into this to make it, I think, a resounding success to come before God and worship Him, and also for the very generous offerings and so on that have come through the feast. Uh, You have taken it upon yourselves as what I would wish and want. We don't pass the hat. We don't take up offerings and then pass it again for a silent one and then pass it again for a jingly one and try to beat somebody else. It's just, you know, the box is there and you come prepared before God to give an offering to Him for the things that He has us here to do. And you're very generous and I know these are trying economic times and so on, but uh, enough money was turned in to help us with things around here, community things and church things. Through the next year. So that's very much appreciated. Along with just the kindness and love and patience that we've had with this family through the feast. Uh, It's been very peaceful and, for the most part, very loving, I think. And I, I just, I really appreciate it because it makes my job a whole lot easier when it's that way. I'm sure glad I had a song in between King All Glorious and having to come up here. It took me back, oh, to the Ambassador Corral in the 60s when I sang that song, and it just really hit me hard, sitting there blubbering like a baby listening to that. But uh, to me, that was one of the most inspiring songs we ever did. King All Glorious. How do you beat that? Yeah, you're Gordon. <laughs> <clears throat> All right, let's turn to Matthew. Chapter 19. We, uh, for some reason, haven't annually taken that photograph. And for some reason, lack of production, I guess, we've kind of forgotten Matthew 19 at the feast. There's something here that we traditionally did because that's when the babies all kind of came together once a year, and uh, we had the blessing of the little children. It was always a very tender and touching moment at the feast to do that. Not that it was commanded to do particularly at that time, but we do have here in Matthew 19, beginning in verse 13, an example of Christ set. It says, "...then were there brought unto him little children, that he should put his hands on them and pray." And the disciples rebuked them. But Emmanuel said, Allow the little children, and forbid them not to come to me. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. And remember back in chapter 18, he had talked about the greatest among us being like a little child, humbled and so on. And he laid his hands on them, and departed from there. So, it was something he wanted done. He put his hands on them, blessed them, asked God's blessing upon them. And that's something we have done in the church. We picked, our Herbert Armstrong picked feast time many, many years ago to do that. Partially because that was, there weren't, weren't many local congregations. And people came to Big Sandy, uh, originally up in Oregon, Uh, in those early years. And that was the only time that the ministry had access to the little children. So it became an annual uh, thing. Now, we've done it here a few times, but due to lack of productivity, (laughs) most of us are getting too old to produce. And then others who would like to are are, uh, prevented because of circumstances. So, there's been a dearth, but there are a few stalwarts hanging in there and uh, still still producing. So, uh, I'd like to have, uh, let's see, Nelson's probably not there. He sounds awful anyway. Uh, at least Gordon come up, and uh, we do have one such child at the feast. I'm surprised it survived the feast, frankly. It's been mauled by countless women and girls. Uh, but we do have Abigail Eve Hershler back there. If you bring her forward, I'll let Grandpa hold her. Maybe she won't bell her if I if I then I, I if I held her. She is worn out. Father in heaven, we come before you, we thank you for little children, they remind us in their innocence and sweetness and tenderness and humility of what you would have us become. We were once little children and then our human nature took over and we became jealous and resentful and selfish and greedy and all the things that are a human being. So you had us look back like Abigail, to a time of just total innocence, which is what we should become. Abigail is born into a world that is fast turning into a very, very dangerous place, and we know that many crucial prophecies are about to be fulfilled, and there is great danger ahead for all human beings except for your protection. So we come to you, laying hands on Abigail, thanking you for this little life, which is certainly a major symbol of your creation and your love and kindness in creating human beings that we might someday share your glory and your kingdom. So Father, in considering this little child, we ask your blessing on her that you will protect your parents, protect her, put your angels about her, and that you will bless her in whatever ways that you see fit, and that she might grow, whether in the millennium or whenever, we don't know exactly when things will come through, but that you will cause her to grow and mature and someday understand your truth and your Way and in her time share in your great kingdom that will rule the universe. So thank you for Abigail Eve. We ask this blessing in the name of Emmanuel, our elder brother and King All Glorious. Amen. Amen. Well, we are here at the final service on the last great day, and I think we are all quite familiar, really, with the meaning of this day. But it pictures a time when estimates go to 50 or 60 billion people who have lived and died on this earth since Adam and Eve. Those are only wild estimates, I suppose, based on How mankind multiplies, so we don't have any idea really how many it's talking about. Which makes it what? Innumerable. Unable to be numbered. Billions of people that have never had a knowledge of God, who have perhaps died as babies. Maybe maybe even those millions in this very country who have been aborted. We do not know when God considers life, life. Herbert Armstrong had the idea in mind based on an analogy in the Bible, and it was merely an analogy. I don't know that it holds through all the way because analogies do break down. They are only a picture or a painting or a drawing of a totality. And therefore, they can only provide a partial understanding. Christ used various analogies and parables to describe the kingdom of God because no one analogy could give the entire and complete picture of the kingdom of God. He often used the family of birth, of children... And when it came in terms of baptism, it was a conception that occurred after a death. Go into the watery grave and die. Uh, But it was only symbolic. We all actually survived the baptism physically. And then symbolically, the laying on of hands and the giving of God's Spirit, which was uh, analogous of the actual conception of a child. Then a period of growth which in our cases could be many, many years, while a baby's is limited to approximately nine months in the womb, until it can be born as a full-fledged human being. Tiny, but all human and all there. Born into the human family. And just as we kill the old self in baptism and have that seed implanted within us, then we have a period in which we are to grow so that we can be born into the kingdom of God. Now, there is a problem involved, and that is that after a child is conceived, it must grow because there are only two possible endings. That child will either be born someday as a human being, or it will miscarry and die. So, the analogy is beautiful, considering us, and thankfully God put things in motion, so that in most cases, children who are conceived are born as human beings. Very high 90s percentage. I don't know what it is. Probably 99 point whatever. Unless and until, of course, man decides to interfere And not only is it a miscarriage, but it is an abortion on top of it. Now, Herbert Armstrong did say that he thought that babies would only be resurrected if they drew the breath of life. I do not know that that is the case. That was his feeling and thought on the matter based on the analogy that I just described. If that be the case then why would it be wrong to abort those babies since they would never be resurrected and were never fully human beings anyhow? But, which of you women carrying a child in your womb were it two, three, four, five months along? You knew it was there, didn't you? You could tell. And then it began to move. You knew it was there. And it was life. If that's not murder, what is it to kill that little child and to take it out of your body? I remember a case in a local church area where this family had several children, but... She miscarried. She was several months along. In fact, it was almost full term, I think. Not, well, no. No, it was was quite some time, but I think there had been movement. But it was far enough along that it possibly could have breathed. And the mother sat on the toilet, and the baby came suddenly. And they saw it there. And they said, I think I saw it breathe. I think I saw it breathe. Because they had been told that if it drew the breath of life, it would be resurrected. But if it didn't, it would not. It was a very perplexing and sad situation. And I shared it with them. I knew them very well, their family. So the question was always in my mind, just because it didn't breathe the breath of life, does that mean that it's gone forevermore? Now let's back off for just a moment and consider, you are a spiritual embryo, are you not? If you've been baptized and had the conception of God's Spirit in your mind, And you are on your way toward being born into the kingdom of God at the return of Christ. Would you consider it murder at this point in time if you were cut off from eternal life just because you had not yet been born? I think so. I would not want to be cut off now after all I've gone through and not make it simply because someone cut me off. I think there's a very good chance, and I don't know that I can say this with authority, I think there's a very good chance that once a child is conceived, it would be resurrected in the great white throne judgment and have opportunity. It was a lie. It was on its way to being born even as we are, and it doesn't want to be cut off any more than we do. Therefore, I think it is murder to abort a child, no matter what stage of development it is. What a ghastly thing to murder children. Now, I want to consider here for a few moments as we get into this the categories. I don't know that we fully understand the resurrections and the judgment. I've always felt like we had a pretty good picture because what we do understand seems to cover all human beings from Adam and Eve until Christ returns in some way. Our understanding has included all groups of people whether alive and remaining or dead and in the grave, whether they be righteously in the grave awaiting the first resurrection or the great white throne judgment. It does cover all peoples from Adam and Eve on down. And perhaps it is right, but there are a few scriptures that are a little vague and and a bit hard to understand. And I don't know that we have the full understanding of them as yet. Perhaps it will come clear if we don't. If we do, then it's just simply that they were a little vague and we understood them anyway. Who knows for sure? But I think time will tell on that. But suffice it for now to understand what we do. Let's go to Revelation 7 and consider this 144,000 that are mentioned here. Let's understand the categories of judgment and resurrection and judgment as God has lined about. Uh, I, I think we already do, and this is going to be a rehearsal in a way, but maybe I'll add a few uh, items or, or ideas or thoughts here that uh, help make the picture clearer. Now, what is the context here? the early chapters of Revelation. After these things, I saw four angels standing on the corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. We know what a seal is. We don't use it in the same way anymore. We sign our name with a pen. But... When this was written, and even since then, and even now today, you have kings and magistrates and so on, even uh, uh, notary publics, who have a seal. And that stamp shows their authority, their involvement with the document. So the seal of the living God was like a wax seal that they used to stamp envelopes with, And if that seal was broken, you knew there had been tampering involved. So, that's what this is talking about. He had the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. The forehead is symbolic of the mentality, the mind, the being, if you will, as opposed to just the body. But the mind is the important part which, in which is character and personality and all those things which make up a member of the family of God. Now, we understand that the beast is going to put a seal in the hand and the forehead, to try to claim ownership of all peoples on the earth. But God has selected a few that He has set aside that they might be sealed. Now, we can go into all of this into sealing itself and see that some were sealed by the Holy Spirit even in Paul's day. He mentions such. So this sealing is not something that happens right at the end only to those who are alive and remain, it's something which started a long time ago. God has already affixed His seal to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Rahab, and David, and Gideon, and all those mentioned in Hebrews 11. They have already been stamped by God as being in the first resurrection. He has the seal of approval upon them. And in fact, there in Hebrews 11, says they will wait in their graves until we are there to join them, whether by resurrection or whether we are alive and remain, as Paul described in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. So this sealing process has already begun with the saints. And as I said, Paul echoed that, and we could go back and, and read it if you'll just do a simple word study on sealed, sealing, and sealed. And I heard the number of them which were sealed. And they were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Now, what does that mean? During the millennium, under the reign of Christ We know that there are 144,000 first fruits, the bride of Christ. We'll see that in a moment in in Zechariah, in Revelation 14 4. Now, the 12 apostles will be the heads of the 12 tribes. There are those who have thought that these had to be blood members of these 12 tribes. Such is not the case based on. First of all, the very fact that many of Christ's original twelve were brothers, physical brothers. And since they were brothers, they could not have represented all twelve of the tribes. Therefore, this has to be a spiritual, not a physical blood delineation. Because can, how can someone who is, let's say, a Gadite, be the apostle over Asher, for instance, the apostles made up twelve, but there were many overlaps in brotherhood which made them blood of another tribe. So God is going to put each one of them, no matter what their physical lineage was, over one of the tribes. So, if they were a Reubenite, they might be over the tribe of Manasseh. I'm just picking those out of the air. And the same thing is true of this spiritual delineation of the twelve tribes. We know from Romans 11 and other scriptures, the many Gentiles were grafted in and were then placed as part of Israel, right? So they also will be first fruits. Paul was apostle not just to the Gentiles, but the one in charge of the Gentile work, though he preached to Israel as well. But he spoke of the first fruits of Achaia, the first fruits, I think, of Corinth. So he indicated that those people who were converted and in the churches in the early New Testament church were part of the first fruits. And we know that Zechariah 14 4 says these 144,000 are the first fruits. No more, no less. 144,000 first fruits. So, Paul spoke of Gentiles who were not blood Israelites at all being part of the first fruits and being part of the tribes of Israel. So what it amounts to is that God must be, when we come into the church, when we come to the point that He says, that one has my endorsement, put the seal on it. There are many people in this age who have died in the faith who have the seal of approval, just like those in Hebrews 11. Because our judgment is now. And therefore, when our life is finished, the judgment is finished. You and I will not have to stand before Christ when He returns and have a judgment placed upon us because we will either have been in the first resurrection or we will be awaiting the third resurrection. The judgment has been done. It has been finished. If you rise from the air... You're glorified in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, right? You're not sort of a suspended human being there in the air with no oxygen waiting until he says, sheep or goat. It doesn't work that way. The scriptures don't work that way. You rise from the air, you're instantly changed into immortality. Your judgment is complete. And your reward is being given. Well, at least your general reward, which is changed and made immortal. The reward according to works will be an assignment of position. Because we'll be rewarded according to our works. So, let's understand that these twelve tribes are... A ruling number, and God uses as the basis for them the twelve tribes of Israel, no matter who uh, they were in terms of physical blood. David will be king over all Israel, but he was a Jew, and only a Jew. He wasn't of all those other tribes, but he will be over all those other tribes as king of all Israel. But the apostles will be over the tribes. And they were not of the blood of each of these tribes, necessarily. One or two might be over the tribe that they were the blood of. But you know what? There are no pure Israelites living on earth today. None. None. Because the patriarchs intermarried. Because the lineage has been muddled. And you can go to Africa and America and South America and you can find DNA within all those peoples from other nations and peoples on the earth. I call myself Israelite. I know I've got Indian in me. I can look at pictures and remember some of my grandparents. On one side, I can remember India. On another side, my my dad always teased my grandmother about being part black. And I think he was right, based upon the features of my grandmother, which is what made him question it in the first place, and some of my cousins who looked like they were part Hamitic So I know I'm a mixture of several different tribes of Israel. I know I'm a mixture of American Indian. And I'm very likely part black as well. Where do I fit? Well, if I'm one of of these tribes, maybe my leg will go to Asher and my elbow will go to Ephraim or something. I don't know. No, the blood goes all through the body, doesn't it? And whatever your parts you are, it's through all of you. There are a lot of people in here that have a mixture of Israelite and Gentile of one kind or another. And I suspect that all of us do. Now, if you want to take that analogy, go to Revelation 14, where it talks again about the 144,000 and says they're all virgins. Where are you going to find 144,000 virgins, literally, physically? So, obviously, it's a spiritual delineation again, the same as the tribes. Paul said he would present the Corinthians as chaste virgins to Christ. And if there was any group of people mentioned in the Bible that was unchaste and were not virgins, it was the Corinthians. Okay? So it is obviously a spiritual, not a physical delineation. Once our sins are forgiven and we give up all the pagan doctrine and uh, beliefs and teachings of pagan worship and pagan churches and our sins be forgiven, then we become virgins before Christ with pure, true doctrine. So that's what it's referring to. So as each person is sealed with the seal of the living God in his forehead, whenever he lived, God places that individual in one of these tribes. Because he's building an organization, a government, and there it will be. When you go to Revelation 21, and it talks about the holy city, it said this new Jerusalem coming down from heaven is the bride. The first fruits are the bride, and there are only 144,000 first fruits. As Zechariah, uh, why well, do I keep saying that? Revelation 14:4 4 says. So if you're in the first resurrection, you're part of the firstfruits and the bride. So he talks about the 12 different tribes here. And then we'll go on down to verse 9. Because it's talking about a different group of people at a different time. And I think I can show this. After this, well, let's, but before we read that, keep your finger there. Let's go back and, and review this again in chapter 14. Uh, because it's it's talking about the same people. Occasionally this comes up that they're talking about two different groups of 144,000, and that simply cannot be because it doesn't all fit and there's no place for them to be in the first place. Chapter 14. It's been talking about the beast whose number is 600, three score and six, 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 666 before this. So this is a time at the end of this age, right? Just as... This is the same period of time in chapter 7 where all of hell was going to be unleashed on the earth to hurt it. And he says, wait until the sealing is finished. So this is a time that goes right up to the return of Christ. The two witnesses will be the last two sealed. Because after they die and the resurrection occurs, they're the last two in the door. So, this is speaking of that time. Now, let's understand the context of chapter 14. Here again you have the beast mentioned, and then a group of godly people as opposed to those who are under the New World Order. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion. Where is he going to come when he returns? Mount of Olives, which is on and in the Mount Zion area. And with him, 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. Says sealed back here in chapter 7, says name written, chapter 14. Same thing. God stamped there. These are mine. Go back and read Revelation 2 and 3 and the various promises he made to the seven churches. And they all include singing the new song. Uh, ruling with the Lamb, and various things, crowns that will be given to those of the church, not from anyone else. So God's name is written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song. You can go back to Revelation, where is it? Uh, I wrote it down here. Oh, here it is, chapter 5, verse 9. talks about the prayers of saints in verse 8. And the, the saints sung a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the book and to open the seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. So he is... Not only taken Israelites, but he has grafted in the Gentiles. He has people involved here singing this new song, which he promised in Revelation 2 and 3 to people in the church. And those, those different things that he gives to each of the seven churches are cumulative. If you're one of these 144,000, you have a new name. You can all sing the new song, which is only mentioned to one of the groups. You'll all have crowns, which is only mentioned to one or two of the groups. In other words, all of those things go to all of them. They're just different ways of expressing that they'll be a part of the kingdom of God, okay? So, he mentions some of the rewards given to those in the kingdom to Ephesus. He mentions others that will be given to Smyrna and to Thyatira. But each of those that has been in those seven churches receives all of those. And it shows it as a group here. The saints singing the new song, and they were redeemed, those redeemed from the earth. O divine Redeemer, Christ who redeems us, all singing the new song. And of all kindreds and tongues and people and nations, when God draws His remnant from around the world, all four corners of the earth, as the end time work to do the temple, to do Jerusalem to finish the work and to back and support and be a light and a, an example for the two witnesses to preach to the rest of the world. They will be from all over. And I suspect then will be the time when we need the gift of tongues the most. Because there are people who are converted around the world who do not speak English. And if we're to understand one another, then God will have to somehow either give us a crash course in various languages or simply give all the ability to understand each other in our own language. A gift of the tongue and of the ear, even as in Acts 2 and 1 Corinthians and so on, so that we might all understand. It's not gibberish that Pentecostals and Evangelicals do. And he's preparing those singing the song, the saints, to reign on the earth. All right, back to Revelation 14. They sung this new song in verse 3, Before the throne, and before the four beasts and the elders, and no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. Same words we just read back in chapter 5. These are they which were not defiled with women, women symbolic of churches, pagan religion, but repented of that and got every last vestige out. Another reason we consider very seriously some of the music we might listen to which has Protestant overtones and perhaps even the wrong spirit behind them, even though they seem good, but Satan can appear as an angel of light. And we need to be very, very careful with the music of Protestants. Some of it may be okay, but we need to be careful of the Spirit. Let's move on. For they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb wherever He goes. There are Scriptures to show that the bride remains with Him once she is raised wherever He goes. will ever be with Him, it says. And... Jude, I believe it is, says he will come with ten thousands of his saints. Not millions, not an innumerable multitude, but he will come with ten thousands of his saints. How many does 144,000 smack of? Tens of thousands. Not one million even, but tens of thousands. 144,000. So, Scripture limits... Those who will be with Christ. And this scripture right here limits it to 144,000 being the first fruits. Christ was the first of the first fruits, the rest at his coming. So, that scripture right there limits the first fruits, the first resurrection, to 144,000, all inclusive. The scripture leaves no room for any more than that, and Jude also limits it by saying ten thousands of his saints. Now, those left in the millennium we're going to address in a moment, because the Bible numbers them, I believe, as well, and it also gives an accounting for the great white throne judgment. So, if we can see how many are in each of these categories, it will help us understand the judgments that we've understood, but it will add a little detail to the picture. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Once we are changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, we will have no fault. All sin forgiven, all sin wiped away, and we will never sin again. So faultless in God's eyes, before His throne. So, see, no judgment. You're either resurrected or you're not. If your judgment has been, I'm not sealing that one, that one's going into the third resurrection, you just simply aren't resurrected until the last resurrection. If the judgment is positive and you've been sealed, up you come. Verse 6, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him. So you have these that are sealed. You have they who are firstfruits when Christ returns. And then you have someone going out to preach the truth. Well, who would that be preaching to? Those who are left, who are left alive, who still need preaching. You and I at that point will have become beyond preaching. You have something to look forward to. I say partly in jest because we still have to preach. But once we're changed, there'll be no more preaching to us. We're the choir. Well, the angels may be the choir, But we'll sing the new song too. We won't need to preach that anymore. But there are still people living who will need it. So, preach to them that dwell on the earth, every nation and kindred and tongue and people, salvation being opened up to everyone that remains. So fear God and give Him glory, for the hour of His judgment is come, "...and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters." There followed another angel saying, Babylon has fallen, is fallen. I think the American Babylonian leadership of the world is going to fall. The New World Order is coming up with the Rothschilds and all their ilk. And then it shortly thereafter will fall as well. I used to think this was emphasis. No, there's two fallings of Babylon. We have been able to clearly show, I think, that the United States, being the present leader of the world, is the epitome of the false Babylonian system, and our government in Washington, D.C. is laid out in true Babylonian, Roman, and Greek form, and is ungodly even in its architectural design and layout. So the 50 states are ruled over by a Babylonian system. And it will fall. Then you have the New World Order, Satan's government coming up that will rule the earth for a short while, have iron and miry clay feet, and will fall again. So Satan's system that is currently here is going away, and it will be replaced by a bigger, more all-encompassing system. So this is speaking of these end-time events culminating in the first resurrection and then all these people needing to be taught the truth. Now, let's go back for a moment to contrast something in Daniel 7. Back in Daniel 7. Now, here I want to pick it up in verse 9. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. Speaking of Christ, obviously, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before Him. Thousand thousands ministered to Him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before Him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. Now, if you multiply that out, you will find that the number there is 100 million. So, when Christ comes back to the earth, sits down to begin the judgment. Now, remember, our judgment is finished. Now is a day of salvation for us. Our judgment will have been completed before Christ ever returns. Events are held back. Until all the 144,000 are sealed, and they are either changed or resurrected when Christ returns. And the first fruits, again, limited to 144,000. Changed when Christ returns. Now he sits down to judge. To judge whom? Those who are left. Beginning of the millennium. I think this Scripture is telling us that when all these end-time events, the wars that mankind wages and Satan wages, and then God's seven last plagues are finished, out of the nearly seven billion on the earth today, only 100 million will survive. And then will begin their judgment during the millennium. Satan bound Revelation 20 for a thousand years And he will begin that judgment. That judgment takes time. Now, in those scriptures where it says the king will sit and he will put the goats on the left and the sheep on the right, we tend to picture that, or the Protestants did, and maybe we got that picture, was that he would just sit down and all these people would march by and he'd say, goat, goat, sheep, sheep, goat, 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 sheep, goat, goat. And most would go to hell. At least that's the way the Protestant preachers would have us believe. No, it is a judgment that begins. Our judgment is a day-by-day thing right now, and it will be completed by the time we die or are changed. These people who live on into the millennium, 100 million of them apparently, are going to have the rest of their life to live out and be judged by their life. He's not going to come back and just suddenly make a judgment on people who have never known the truth. Those 100 million are going to be, by and large, if not all, people who have never known the truth. So a judgment simply cannot be made on someone who had nothing to be judged by except Satanism and carnality. Therefore, they have to be given a period of time with truth, With knowledge, with proper teaching, to be judged on whether they'll go God's way or not, and most will, because they will have been humbled by all the things that they have seen. So, the first resurrection, 144,000. Those who live into the millennium, it appears 100 million, from him sitting down when he returns to begin that judgment. And sorting the sheep and the goats, then, is over a period of time. Yes, he will sit to judge sheep from goats. But where that is mentioned in Scripture, it does not mention the time element. You can read into it, if you please, that it is an immediate thing. You know, boom, 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 it's all over. No. If we are given a period of time with the truth to be judged... God has to be fair and give those people at the beginning of the millennium the same fair shake. Okay? Now let's go back to Revelation 14. Well, no, let's go to to 7 again now because this is where this is spelled out more. So he has these 144,000 sorted out who are changed, who had the seal, or who were virgins. Uh, Describes them twice. But... They all amount to the same thing. The holy city coming down has walls 144 cubits high, not 144 times 2 or any other such thing. It has the 12 gates, the 12 apostles, ruling over the 12 tribes. So the total given in Revelation 21 describing the holy city, the bride of Christ coming down from heaven has the numbers 144,000 there within the structure of the city. So there's no room to separate Revelation 7 and 14 and say this is two different groups because both describe the same people only in a little different way with a different analogy. Governmental numbers here in terms of Revelation 7 Twelve apostles, twelve tribes, 12,000 in each, total of 144,000. That's your organizational chart of the bride of Christ or the government of God. Then in Revelation 14, you have a delineation of spiritual condition. See the difference? This is governmental organization, chapter 7. Chapter 14, virgins spiritually. No faults. So, one, here's the organization. Two, here is the spiritual condition. Now, chapter 7, verse 9. After this, I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations, and kindreds, and people, and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. These are going to also then be offered salvation in their own time and place. So all their sins will have been forgiven. These are the people who've lived from Adam through the end of this age, who have lived and died, whether they died as babies or old men and women, Killed early, died early, whatever. They never knew the truth, were never converted, and there are billions and billions of them. He numbers those who are left in Daniel 7 when the millennium begins. Sit down to judge them, and they are countable. Okay? They're numberable. 100 million of them. It gives the number. Here it gives a number that is a great multitude that no man can number. And we can stand here today and we can go through all kinds of math and generations and how many generations and how quickly people multiply. And some of them were like rabbits and some of them had birth control. And who knows? Unbelievable how many people have lived on the earth and utterly innumerable. But their sins are forgiven. How? Death atones for sin. Christ's sacrifice atones for sin. So these are people who have lived and died, and when they're resurrected, Revelation 20, we'll see that in a moment, moment, they will be standing there sinless, which is represented by their white garments. That doesn't mean they've been changed into spirit yet that their spiritual delineation at that moment is that they're clean. And cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God which sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. Their whole attitude will have changed. They're going to see the Father and the Son in the new Jerusalem, which had come down at the beginning of the millennium. They will come up a thousand years later in the general resurrection billions of them, tens of billions of them, and they're going to look, and they will have been humbled by what they've been through, death, resurrection to physical life, and they will see the Father and the Son on the throne. And they'll say, okay, here we go. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces, "...and worship God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever." Now, that's the angels and the elders. <laughs> and one of the elders answered, saying to me, "...what are these which are arrayed in white robes, and where do they come from?" Now, the 144,000 were already there because the new heavens and new earth had come at the beginning of the millennium, as i proved before. And I won't go there today. So that's already a done deal. The people at the beginning of the millennium then who lived through that hundred million of Daniel 7 will have already lived and been judged. And then comes this great general resurrection of those who've never had a chance, pictured by today, the great white throne judgment. Because Christ will then be sitting on that great white throne and will start giving judgment. So, here's the 144,000 of the first resurrection. Here are these people that were saved in the millennium. They're already changed at this point. Who are these then? Is the question. I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So, this is people speaking maybe of the great three and a half years of tribulation that kills everybody but a hundred million, and those went into the millennium, remember, if they lived. So if they came out of the great tribulation, that means they were killed in it and had to be resurrected in order to now be judged. The ones that lived went into the millennium. This is afterward, after this. So who are these? Now, let's look at the great tribulation as opposed to the end time three and a half year tribulation. There has been great tribulation since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. God immediately caused thorns and drought and dust and snakes that bit. And all kinds of hard, hard, difficult things that man would face so that he would make his living by the sweat of his brow, having to work hard rather than just dress and keep the garden which was on its own productive. So we have been in a great tribulation under the rulership of Satan the devil for 6,000 years. This has been a great trial, or if you will, tribulation, to use that word. Now, there is the specific tribulation or trial at the end of the age, which is listed as 42 months, 1260 days, three and a half years. But these came all through this great tribulation that man has had since Satan was sick on us when we were kicked out of the garden. And we have been under it and enduring it since. We have been in civilizations fraught with war, with pestilence, with black plague, with genocide, with all kinds and manners of disease, and people dying as babies, even in this country. Smallpox, just you know, it just goes on and on. Cancer, diabetes, heart disease, all the diseases of Egypt. It's been tough for 6,000 years. Is there any room to say that there has been a great tribulation of 6,000 years to date? Or almost that? And when they're resurrected, they're given white robes, they're judged pure, and then they have a period of time to live and prove whether or not they will follow God's way, Satan having been rebound, and the rulership of Christ and His bride, and the many children that came through the millennium added to the governmental numbers to handle this truly innumerable multitude which comes. Now let's go on down and see this a little more. Therefore, because they came through this tribulation... They are before the throne of God, and serve Him day and night in His temple, and He that sits on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun lighten them nor any heat. For the Lamb, which is in the midst of the throne, shall feed them and shall lead them to living fountains of water. They're not quite there yet, but they're going to be led there. The river will still be coming from under the throne even as it did in the millennium and will go out to heal all these peoples and nations and feed them and lead them unto the living fountains of waters. And God shall, it hasn't already been done, they're already in the kingdom, He shall, future, wipe away all tears from their eyes. Now we will have had all our tears and misery and pain washed away in turning to immortality when Christ returns, the 144,000. These will have their chance later. They'll be accounted clean. They'll be led to the living waters. And then their eyes will be wiped. And by and large, the vast majority of them will enter the kingdom of God. That's the way God has set it up. Now let's go for a moment to Revelation 20 and confirm a little bit of this. And I want to wrap this section up here. Revelation 20. An angel that is symbolic of Christ who is a messenger himself and is described so in the Scriptures. Uh, None of the archangels are strong enough to do this. It has to be speaking of Christ who is the one qualified and who has gotten the victory over the devil and bound him a thousand years. Throw him into into the pit. Deceive the nations no more till the thousand years are, for finish, are finished. I saw thrones and them that sat on them, judgment was given to them, and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Christ and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. You can go back. There have been many people beheaded. You see some of them in uh, Hebrews 11. Isaiah saw it in half. You know, they were killed in various ways. So they're not alive under the altar. You can go back to Revelation, I think it's 5 that it describes that. 5 or is it? Uh, no, 7. 6. Verse 9, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God. They're not alive. The dead know nothing. These are dead. They're slain. They're awaiting "...for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, do you not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth?" Now, that's metaphoric. They're not alive. The dead know nothing. So, it's a metaphor. The fact that they're laying there dead awaiting a resurrection is a cry of when is this resurrection going to occur? We are alive and remain, to this point at least, and we ask, how long? So their blood, which has been shed, is crying out from the ground. It doesn't mean they're conscious and alive. Let's understand analogy and metaphor. And white robes were given to every one of them. And it was said to them that they should rest yet for a little season, And to their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. So that they are awaiting the first resurrection. They have been sealed, as Hebrews 11 shows, and they are awaiting the resurrection. They have been adjudged white. White robes are uh, analogous to righteousness. So their judgment is done. They'll be raised in a moment, the twinkling of an eye, when Christ returns. But meantime, their deaths are crying out for judgment upon those throughout history who killed the people of God. Even some here at the end as well. So this is that 144,000 in verse 4 that reign with Christ a thousand years. The first fruits of The dead. The rest of the dead live not again till a thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. So, you had those who are made Christ when He returns 144,000. You have a hundred million who survive uh, the end time events and go into the millennium to be judged. The rest of the dead would be those who lived from Adam until now who have never known the truth that we have always said were those in the great white throne judgment. Now notice what it says. The rest of the dead. That's everybody that hasn't been resurrected. Blessed and holy is he that had part in the first resurrection. The second death had no power, but they shall be priests of God and shall reign with him a thousand years. Then Then Satan is loose a little bit, deceives the nations, and so on. Let's go down to today then. (laughs) there's a rebellion when Satan uh, is turned loose, but we don't want to go there. I want to, to read this for sake of time. Verse 11. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, And the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books, the Bible, the books of the Bible, according to their works. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. Well, they haven't had an opportunity yet (coughs) at conversion. Which works? The ones that they have from the time they're resurrected until their judgment is complete be it a hundred years as we thought we understood or however long it is. It could be a hundred, but that cannot be established in Isaiah 65 and 66. That is clearly millennium when the new heavens and new earth are here and all flesh will still worship. So, they are judged then. Well, the judgment means it could be a positive or a bad judgment. But out of that then will be those who are cast into the lake of fire, those who were truly converted and aborted during our age, during the millennium, and in this general resurrection. So there is the dead, small and great. Everyone except the 144,000. That is an innumerable multitude. They start out clean. They're led to the fountain of waters. They're given opportunity they're judged by their works over a period of time and then the final judgment is made so god shows three groups those who are Christ at his coming tens of thousands those who are judged in the millennium 100 million at the beginning plus children and then those billions who come up in what this day pictures the great white throne judgment now i want to take a few moments i didn't intend to spend this much on this but i did so, that you have it. And perhaps it was worth doing. Let's go back to the book of Psalms one more time. I realize I only have two hours left. <clears throat> I don't know how much your behind has left. But let me whip through a few things here because there's a conclusion I wish to reach. Now, in what we have described thus far today, there is a common denominator, isn't there? We've been seeing... Things about Him in these early psalms because it's about man and the Son of Man who came. It's prophecies about Christ lived through in the life of David and written down because it would be the things that He went through while He was on the earth. Direct prophecies of Him given by Him while He was Melchizedek in the Old Testament. Then lived out when he came as the Son of Man. And at the same time, fitting our lives because we suffer the same things he suffered. So it's about David, it's about Christ, and it's about us. And it's about all humans in general because he's first, this first section of Psalms, and going into the second is about the experiences of man on the earth, including the Son of God, who was man. So, we left off at the beginning of chapter 22. This is one that we read at least parts of, usually at Passover, along with Isaiah 52, 2 and 3, or 53 really, because it is so very directly the thoughts and the words of Christ as He was punished, as He was beaten, and then as He died. starts out with, One of the very last thing, I guess, he said. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we understand it's because of our sins on his back. And God is separate from sin. And our sins caused the Father to forsake him. He was truly forsaken. He said it himself. Not because of what he had done, but because of what we have done. I'm not going to get into all the aspects of that. It's more of a Passover message. But it applies here because whether the first fruits are those in the millennium or those in the great white throne judgment, they all have to have one thing in common, and that is the salvation of our Redeemer and our Savior because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God no matter what era they lived in, and therefore His blood has to cover it all. So when we speak on the, great, the last great day of the feast, Christ's sacrifice is applicable here. And watch how this ends before we're done. Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? O my God, I cry in the day and you hear not in the night and I'm not silent. But you are holy, O you, that inhabit the praises of Israel. So speaking to his Father as he went through what he went through. Uh, Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted in you to deliver them. Didn't he? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all those people, God delivered them. And their trials, troubles, and tribulations, and they're going to be in the first resurrection, Hebrews eleven. So he's recounting what God has done in the past, okay? Then he says, They cried, they trusted you and were not confounded. But I'm a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised of the people. Don't we fit here? We can recount how God has delivered people in the past, but then we say, well, why haven't you delivered me? We have the same emotion, the same feeling. We're going through the same thing. I'm a worm. Isn't that the way we feel? All they that see me laugh me to scorn. We haven't had much persecution yet, but it's coming. It's a prophecy. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head saying, they did this to the apostles in the early New Testament church. They're going to do it to us. Read Matthew 24 and Luke 21. They say he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. God is going to let us get into a situation where people will laugh at us and say, yeah, they said they were going to be delivered and they haven't been. I bet money he puts us in that position. And then he will deliver, just as he did Christ. Just as he did David. David. But you are he that took me out of the womb. You did make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. Started early in his life. Many of you can say that you can see how God was working in your life and leading you toward conversion even as a child. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. Where are we today? For there is none to help, and there won't be. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. Not just human beings, but Satan and the demons were there as well at the party. And they were the main ones pushing it, just like they will be when Satan is cast down and comes after the church. Satan and the demons, yeah, they'll send an army, a flood after us, but who put them up to it? I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up. It's scary. It's hurtful. It's painful. My tongue cleaves to my jaws, and You have brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and feet. I can tell all His bones. They stare at Him. They part His garments. Clearly, Christ. Be not far from me, O Lord, O my strength. Haste to help me rescue my darling or my only one from the dogs. Save me from the lion's mouth. Satan. Or you've heard me from the horns of the unicorns. I've known you all my life. I've known you through eternity. Help me, which is where we will be. Save me from this, and I will declare your name to to the brethren in the midst of the congregation while I praise you. David prayed that in Psalm 51, even as Christ did here. And Christ is preaching to us today. These are His words that we are reading this very day from Him. You that fear the eternal praise Him. All the seed of Jacob glorify Him and so on. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither has he hid his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. That's why we need to be crying out and crying out and giving him no rest until these things come to pass and all this trial, trouble, and tribulation is taken away and we are protected. My praise shall be of you. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. He shows who will be protected. They shall praise the eternal and seek him. Your heart shall live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the eternal. So it's a prophecy not only of His death at that time, but of everyone turning to Him in the millennium, the great white throne judgment, throughout all the plan of God. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and He is the governor among the nations. All they that be fat upon earth shall eat and worship, and all that go down to the dust shall bow before Him, and none can keep alive his own soul. A seed shall serve Him. It shall be accounted to the eternal for a generation. He says He's going to take a small twig off the dead tree and plant a live tree, a remnant of His people that will serve Him. This in time generation spoken of here. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be you lift up, you everlasting... Do-. Oh, wait a minute. I, I skipped over. Uh, Psalm 23 I wanted to hit next. Here, we know this one. I'm not going to read it all. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, and so on, because you're there to protect me. We probably can recite this one from heart. But again, with what He was going through and what we're going through, we look to Him for protection and help. And goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives and will dwell in the house of the eternal forever. So that shows immortality in the kingdom of God if we walk through this valley and shadow of death that is now coming down upon the earth. Now it changes thought in chapter 24. The earth is eternal, and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. So Christ's sacrifice in all we read in chapter 22 and 23 is about His return and His reign over all the earth, including those in the millennium and the great white throne judgment and we reigning with Him a thousand years during that time. For He is founded upon the seas and established upon the floods. Who shall ascend into the hill of the eternal? Or who shall stand in His holy place? So all that Christ went through, let's examine now and define who is going to benefit from that. He that has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, who has the heart and the mind of a little child. And we just set one aside today in the laying on of hands, a little child that we're all to become like, meek and humble and tender and gentle with one another and with those who will be in the kingdom of God in the millennium and great white throne judgment. That's the kind of leaders there will be in that day. He shall receive the blessing from the eternal and righteousness from the God of His salvation. This is the generation of them that seek Him, that seek Your face. O Jacob, stop and think about that. Pause the music. I was coming to this today. Bill got to it. We played the song. Now let's read it. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be you lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. He's going to bring all of these things, His death, His resurrection, His gathering of His people, together to form this plan of salvation that spans a millennium and the great white throne judgment, and shows that all mankind generally is going to be in the kingdom of God because God is a successful Father. And very few will be lost. He is strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Even lift them up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Pause the music. Think about it. Christ went through all that He went through. That we might be saved. That those who survive the horrors of the end time can be saved. And all people from Adam until today will also have a chance at salvation. There is the King who will glorify mankind. The King of glory. I can only say it so much. Let's close this day and listen one more time to the King of Glory.